Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Even patients with health insurance can face very high cost sharing for expensive brand name medications. And we know that many people who are prescribed these drugs simply don't fill the prescription because of the cost. One response by the pharmaceutical industry has been to fund charities that operate patient assistance programs to cover patients' cost sharing. Now, federal law prohibits payments to induce people to buy a specific service in a public program like Medicare, so these patient assistance programs have to meet certain standards to comply with the law. But for medical conditions with only a few possible treatments, it's possible to align the charitable contributions closely with the purchases in a way that benefits the manufacturer. So how does this theoretical possibility of using charitable contributions to benefit the donor play out in the real world? The question of who benefits from pharmaceutical patient assistance programs is the topic of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm here with Limor Daphne, the Bruce V. Rahner Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School and Harvard Kennedy School. Dr. Daphne and co-authors published a paper in the September 2022 issue of Health Affairs examining donations made by pharmaceutical manufacturers to patient assistance charities. Based on an analysis of drug spending among Medicare Advantage enrollees, they found that donations made by leading pharmaceutical manufacturers are likely profitable. We'll discuss these findings in today's program. Now, Dr. Daphne, you were a guest on Health Policy about a year ago. Normally, I would say welcome. Today, I'm going to say welcome back, but I'm also going to say welcome back to be my guest on the 100th episode of A Health Policy. It's so nice to have you with me. Um, thank you so much for that terrific introduction, Alan. I am very glad to be with you and to be your 100th guest. Well, we've picked a great topic for our 100th uh, episode. The financing of pharmaceuticals is so complex But uh, many people probably have had experience with either coupons or pharmaceutical patient assistance programs. Can you just start by giving me a thumbnail of what these pharmaceutical patient assistance charities do? How do they work? Um, Absolutely. So as you mentioned, there are a range of of programs um, out there to help patients pay their cost sharing associated with medications. And I have done research on some of the avenues that are available for commercially insured patients, specifically drug-specific coupons. And in this paper, together with co-authors, I'm tackling um, specifically independent patient assistance charities, which is the way that Medicare enrollees can gain assistance for drugs that they're taking. So maybe we should jump right into why it's different for Medicare, and that gets at the anti-kickback statute. Uh, The rules are different for Medicare than for private, and maybe you could explain why that is. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the rules are different, um, and that's because uh, federally insured individuals uh, and anyone who wants to provide medical care or medical products to them, they they face the anti-kickback statute. And that was passed in 1972 uh, because Congress was worried about fraud and abuse. And they were worried that um, any payoffs or kickbacks uh, that could influence healthcare decisions uh, or, you know, products being taken and such could result in patients 
uh, receiving care or taking products that were potentially unnecessary, excessively costly, of low quality, could be dangerous. Uh, so they enacted a prohibition and basically said any remuneration uh, that um, is uh, linked to a, a service that is a claim, a, you know, that is funded by the federal government is, is prohibited. And that uh, regime doesn't apply to commercial insurance. So you can uh, have coupons that guide people to certain products and reduce their costs, uh, but you can't use coupons in Medicare. Is that right? All of that is exactly right. So the commercially insured, um, they can take uh, coupons that are issued by manufacturers. They can uh, receive, uh, you know, some form of, of compensation. It could be a meal even uh, uh, as part of receiving a medical service. None of that is allowed for federally insured patients. So this anti-kickback statute is designed, as you say, it's anti-fraud. It's designed so that people aren't induced to do something they wouldn't otherwise do. What is it about that that then affects the structure of these charities? Yes. So, all right, what, what, what this means is that... Um, manufacturers, if they want to help patients buy their drugs, um, if the patients are commercially insured, they can issue a drug-specific coupon. They can also open what's called a manufacturer-sponsored patient assistance program, which um, is just organized a little differently. Um, but if they want to help Medicare enrollees, they are not permitted, as you know, uh, to provide assistance directly for their own drugs. But according to the Office of the Inspector General, they can make uh, donations to third-party assistance organizations, and they can earmark those donations for a specific condition. Uh, so, so what I'm studying in this paper is, does that requirement that you donate through, you know, at an arm's length to uh, an independent charity. If you were, you know, just to have adhere to that, uh, we can talk later about whether organizations are always adhering to that uh, arm's length requirement, but um, does that prevent effectively kickbacks from happening? Uh, and as you previewed at the beginning, um, we find a lot of evidence that in many conditions, uh, even if you give at an arm's length, uh, the leading manufacturer would effectively be assisting purchases of their own medication. Okay, so I know it's a different context, but if I were to donate money to a school where my kid happens to go, I, clearly the money can't flow to my kid, but the kid can get a scholarship from the school, and it doesn't negate that my contribution was just a donation to the school. So I get this notion that there needs to be distance. It, I, it, it can't be totally targeted. So what is it about the pharmaceutical market that makes it important to, or makes it complex to understand whether or not these donations are actually coming back to the company? Right. So you've hit the nail on the head, um, unsurprisingly, Alan. And and the, the key issue here is that the pharmaceutical markets for many, many of the conditions uh, that are covered by these independent uh, patient charities is very highly concentrated. What that means is a very small number of manufacturers have the lion's share of sales within a covered condition. And so if I'm a manufacturer and I, you know, uh, account for 90% of the sales 
uh, of drugs that treat a given condition and I donate to an independent foundation that provides uh, cost sharing assistance to Medicare enrollees with that condition, like they're going to be taking my drug. And to the extent you know that, that they wouldn't otherwise have taken the drug, but for the assistance, that's going to increase the utilization and spending on my drug and you know could be very profitable for me. Okay, now we're going to get into an example. This is sort of, uh, this is a great topic where, like, I wish we had a whiteboard and we could just show it to our listeners, but, but we don't. So we're going to have to talk through this. And I, what's, what's the, the leverage here that I want you to help us all understand is the cost sharing relative to what the pharmaceutical company gets paid when someone takes the drug, because that's the lever, right? When when you get a copay coupon, you think, wow, I, the patient, am saving $100 or $500 of what would have been the copay. But what's the company getting when I use that coupon? Or in this instance, what's the company getting when I'm able to afford my copay because I have charitable assistance? So really what you're, what you're after here is how much of the total value of the drug sale, kind of net of rebates, everything the manufacturer gets back, how, what share of that is, is cost sharing that they would have to cover through a donation um, in order to get the sale? Uh, and, uh, or even if it's, I have to kind of flag this, the federal law is, uh, is what's called a per se law. It doesn't actually require that the sale wouldn't have happened without the assistance. It just requires that you're providing some remuneration for a claim that's made against the federal government. So I kind of just, just want to flag that. Uh, but in terms of the value, let me give you, if I may, an example. Okay. Yep. That'd be great. All right. Um, so uh, in our data, we look at all of the conditions that are covered by the seven largest patient assistance charities in 2010 and in 2017, okay? Uh, and there were 87 such conditions in 2010 and I think 156 uh, in 2017, no, 154. So we then also looked at the top 10 most expensive conditions in each year. Uh, and one of those, the one I'm going to tell you about, is um, short bowel syndrome. Okay, So short bowel syndrome uh, uh, has a medication uh, for its treatment that was introduced um, by uh, Shire, later acquired by Takeda, um, and launched at a price of nearly $300,000 per year. Okay. Um, before that launch, we didn't see a patient assistance program for it, but after that launch, we did. Okay. And we calculate um, that because that drug is so expensive and cost sharing for Medicare enrollees um, in our sample is not trivial, but it's, it's relatively low relative to the cost of the drug, that if Takeda donated to the patient assistance fund uh, enough to cover the cost sharing for every person who um, had short bowel syndrome, then it would have been a profitable decision so long as 5% of those patients um, were enabled uh, as a result of that assistance. So as long as 5% of those sales wouldn't have happened, but for the assistance, then Takeda just donating for the condition um, would have would have made money. Okay, so I want to just follow this thread here. I'm a patient, and this is a very expensive drug. 
um, I have insurance. And so all I'm faced with is a copay, but that could be quite substantial. Um, if I walk away, the drug company gets nothing. If they subsidize my copay and I then proceed to buy the drug, of course, the drug company through the charity has had to pay me and probably a lot of other people for their cost sharing. But my insurance company is going to pay the pharmaceutical manufacturer a very large amount for the drug. And that is what you're measuring against all of the cost sharing subsidies that they're providing. So is that the, that's the sort of the, the, the one side of the ledger versus the other side? Yeah. On one side is how much, how much would the manufacturer have to cover in patients' cost sharing? And on the other side is, well, how much money do they take in? And the only modification I'd make to what you said is that we do subtract in 2017, it's about uh, 16% from the net sales to account for discounts that manufacturers give because um, we don't have detailed rebate data, but we know that some of these drugs have rebates and discounts. And we know that Part D requires certain discounts. So we, we account for that. Okay, well, that's a pretty striking example. I'd like to talk to you about the policy implications, what this really tells us about the market and what we might do about it. We'll have that conversation after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Limor Daphne about pharmaceutical manufacturers' contributions to patient assistance charities. Now, before the break, we walked through an example where the price of a drug was quite high, and a contribution to a charity to cover cost sharing, uh, even if only a small number of the patients change their behavior from not purchasing to purchasing, could end up benefiting the company. Um, I'm assuming, though, as you said before the break, that you've, you gave, drew an example from one of the top 10 most expensive uh, conditions, and you used an example where the list price is $300,000. I know there are a lot of expensive drugs out there, but that's not the norm. So presumably, if you look at the whole of the 80-plus or 140-plus at the two time periods, you have quite a range of whether or not the uh, the potential benefits of the pharmace to the pharmaceutical company are as large, and you also have a range of whether there's just this one drug for the condition or there are multiple. So can you, can you give me a sense of how, I guess what I'm trying to get at is how typical the example you just gave me was? Absolutely. Uh, so one, one thing to note is I gave you that, that example where almost 100% of sales uh, to treat a given condition were accounted for by one manufacturer. Across all of the conditions that are covered by patient assistance charities, we found that the leading manufacturer on average accounts for just over half of sales. Okay. So, um, and if the, the sales uh, are less concentrated, then it will be tougher for one manufacturer to find it profitable to donate at an arm's length enough to cover everybody's cost sharing, cost sharing for all the drugs treating the condition, uh, that means that the manufacturer will have to benefit from a greater percentage increase in sales than if it could uh, donate to a condition that largely kind of just served uh, its own medications, right? So what we call, we look at what's called the 
break-even inducement percentage, right, which is the percent of sales that would need to be induced as a result of the assistance in order to make it worthwhile for the very top manufacturer to cover everybody's cost sharing. And for the top 10 drugs, right, in 2002, that me the median of that is, is 2%. You only need to increase sales by 2%. Uh, and for for uh, short bowel syndrome, it was 5%. So that's pretty typical of the top 10. Um, but in 2017, if you look across all of the 154 conditions, the median break-even is 22%. So you would have to believe if you were to be able to, if you were to donate enough to cover cost-sharing for all medications, the your own medications would have to benefit in terms of an increase of 22% of sales in order for that to be worth your while. Now, of course, this assumes that you can't actually direct funds to just your medications. Um, and I should note there are a lot of lawsuits uh, that have that are pending and some that have settled around manufacturers and assistance charities doing exactly that. So the idea here is that when and again, this is sort of a standard economics puzzle. If you offer a subsidy, some people will change their behavior because of that. Other people just take the subsidy and do what they would have done anyway. So it might be a high cost sharing, but I, I, you know, if I had had to pay the full amount, I would have somehow come up with it. And uh, you don't get an inducement from that. But in order for this to yield benefits to the manufacturers, they have to induce a certain amount of uh, new behavior. You know, I'm so this is a, a really thorny public policy challenge and, and we're not gonna solve it here on this podcast. But that's too bad. Alan. No, you, you you well maybe you will, and I would I would love it if you could. But but let's tease this out just in a couple of different directions because I think uh, this issue is not going away. Um so first of all, I guess the question I wanna ask you is I want you to help me understand the puzzle, which is as an individual patient, it's unambiguously good for me to get the assistance from this charity versus not. I face a large copayment. I may or may not be able to afford it, but it's less expensive if I have the help. So why wouldn't we just want more of these? Ah, um, well, because, and this, there's a similar story in research I've done for copay coupons, because what helps you at the counter may not help you or, and certainly all of us in the long run, because somebody is left paying that total, right? What sounds good isn't always actually good for us. I think that's pretty familiar to anyone who, study, who studies healthcare um, or even is making a decision <laughs> uh, over what to eat for lunch. And in the case of this uh, cost-sharing assistance, by, by eliminating the, the pain at the pump, if you will, or the pain at the counter, that relaxes any pricing constraint that pharmaceutical manufacturers face uh, to uh, try to make their drugs uh, more affordable. Uh, and it also eliminates the possibilities that insurers have to try to direct your spending towards something that might be more cost effective or something where they've negotiated a better deal. Uh, so the manufacturers don't have an incentive to give any, any price concessions. So it kind of removes the tools 
um, many of the tools that are in place to help constrain uh, price growth. And ultimately, those prices, um, they're paid by someone, they're paid by insurers, uh, both federal and private, and they come out of our, our you know, taxpayer dollars as well as our, our insurance premiums. But here's the puzzle. Given our current pricing structure, which is very complex, what are the alternatives? And then, of course, I'm going to ask you the next question, which is if we could change some of our pricing structure to eliminate this weird dynamic, what would that look like? But let's start with the more immediate. Based on your work and the existence already of a federal statute, what, uh, what could we do differently to reduce this dynamic? So the short-term thing that this research suggests, okay, kind of let's start small and then let's build from there, is that the regulations that currently allow pharmaceutical manufacturers to make donations to charitable organizations that then turn around and cover patients' uh, costs for using their drugs, um, that guidance is insufficient to prevent there from being kickbacks. To the, to the donors. So um, my recommendation there would be to rescind that guidance uh, and, uh, and you know, have pharmaceutical companies be accountable for the AKS. They're not permitted to provide assistance for the purchase of their own medications, whether or not it goes through an independent uh, foundation. So that, that's what I would recommend. Um, if we were having this conversation, Alan, even I think 10 days ago, right. it, would be a, <laughs> it would be a little different. Yes, I was going to take you there. So please do. Um, I, I suspected as much. So as, as we both know, the, uh, the new Inflation Reduction Act includes provisions regarding um, drug pricing and also Medicare enrollees out-of-pocket spending, which is going to be capped at... I think it's $2,000 in 2024. Am I right yep, on that? Yep. So what that means is that they're not going to have to pay more than that amount. And therefore, rescinding this guidance would not hit in the same way that it might have done um, in the past. Uh, because that there will be, you know, the, the amount for which you're on the hook um, will be much lower for those people who, you know, were in the worst, worst circumstance. I'm not about to say $2,000 isn't a lot of money. I'm just going to say that the warped incentives that result from this um, would have uh, less, less uh, implication for, for seniors than it might have. Right. I don't hear you saying 2000 isn't a lot of money. What I hear, and this is sort of why I asked the earlier question, is that this whole dynamic exists because of our copayment structure, which under Medicare can still leave significant uh, out-of-pocket costs at the time of purchase of, of drugs, many of which are, you know, medically necessary and highly beneficial. And we've built a healthcare system where that's part of what we just take as a given that there will be this cost sharing. And if there were less of it, or imagine none of it, none of the dynamic that you've studied would take place. You'd have to go find something else to study it. I don't know what that could possibly be. Um, <laughs> but uh, so capping the out-of-pocket doesn't eliminate the hydraulic, but it certainly changes the nature of it. It really does. And I want to highlight that... Um, that you know, research suggests it it will be beneficial to have different tiers of cost sharing amounts 
conditional on depending on the drug. Okay. There's lots of times that cost sharing isn't a good thing to have. Okay. But especially if there are therapeutic alternatives for the same condition, having different amounts of cost sharing, say 15 versus $30 can help to steer patients toward the drug for which um, a PBM is negotiated a lower price. And that's healthy competition um, and using modest amounts of cost sharing to enable um, to enable lower prices. So having a cap that isn't zero can really facilitate those kinds uh, of negotiations. So uh, eliminating all cost sharing would certainly be appropriate for certain medications and you know for one option for essential medications and so forth. But having some room there that is not offset by pharmaceutical manufacturers through coupons or cost sharing assistance programs is an important discipline and mechanism that the market needs. Yes, I uh, that that sounds like the business school professor in you, and I appreciate that perspective. And I um, I don't want to lose something though that you mentioned a moment ago, which is if you changed the opportunity for gains to the manufacturers, presumably their incentive to contribute to these charities would go down. I mean, they're they're rational business actors. And so if they don't think they're generating business for themselves, or they're not permitted by new structures to do that, presumably their interest in these programs would be lower, right? Yeah, I think it goes in both ways, okay? Um, on the one hand, um, if cost sharing is lower, okay, then patients um, are likely to buy their drugs anyway. That's your point, yep. right? So maybe they won't need to donate. On the other hand, covering their cost sharing is cheaper now, right? Uh, so I think the net effect is ambiguous. Certainly, they would be needing to donate less, period. But kind of the return on that investment, I think, is not is not clear. That's interesting. So you will still have something to study, even with the passage of this new law. So that's that's good. I don't want to put you out of business here. No, and remember, they're all of those commercially insured patients. <laughs> you can study them. Till the cows come home. There you go. For whom the, you know, many provisions of the law really just don't apply. Um, so, yeah, I'll have, I'll, I'll, don't you worry. <laughs> okay, I won't. Well, Dr. Daphne, this is, uh, this is such an important topic, and we are hitting it at exactly the right time, as you note, because the policy has just changed. But the, the dynamics here of financing of patient behavior, of manufacturer behavior, of pricing behavior, the negotiating power of insurers, it's incredibly complex. And you've, I think, contributed to moving us from sort of what, what we all knew, which is theoretically these can be beneficial, to actually data, to showing us that in many instances, it's pretty clear that they are beneficial. And that's a real contribution to the field. It's not the final answer, but it's very important new information as we try to set policy going forward. So I thank you for the analysis, the work, uh, for your clarity, and for taking on a tough topic, and for being my 100th guest on a health policy. Alan, thank you. It really is a pleasure to be uh, here with you today. And let's see if I can't be the 200th guest. Sounds good to me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. 
Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.